Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back to the History of England, episode 81, The Great Cause. Firstly, I poll with agrology. Graham has pulled me up on some basic facts. In episode 79, I said Maximus was the father of Constantine, which is of course Twaddle. As you were all no doubt thinking, hey, hang on, wasn't the father of Constantine that Constantius bloke? If you were, you were right, well done. And Graham, thanks for pulling me up. Last time I left you all with what I imagine was a puzzle that you have worried and scratched your head about for all of mm, five seconds. I.e. the death of a seven-year-old girl in the Orkney Islands. To explain why this would kick off one of the great conflicts in British history, we're going to have to go back a bit further. To us Brits, antagonism between the Scots and the English is a kind of immutable law of life, you know, the sun rises in the morning, bears poo in the forest. The Scots will always despise the English. In fact, the same applies pretty much to any Celt in the English, but we'll leave that for another day. But I have news for you. T'was not always thus. In the unlikely event that there are any Scots listening to this podcast, I imagine what I'm about to say will seem frankly risible. But here it is. Once upon a time, the Scots rather looked up to the English. Even more, the two nations got on really rather well. Going back a long way to the good old Anglo-Saxons, Lothian all the way up to and including Edinburgh were part of the English Kingdom of Northumbria. When William arrived, you might remember that King Malcolm and his English wife Margaret did their very best to help Edgar Atheling to get his throne back. After that, there's a good period where there is a certain amount of antagonism across the border, the Scots, as far as the English were concerned at that time, were nothing more than a bunch of hairy barbarians with a liking for shortbread. 
But then we get a Scottish king called David. David had been forced out of the Scottish court after 1093 and had wound up down south with Henry I. He found he rather preferred the Norman-French approach to things. So when he finally managed to get back onto the Scottish throne, David set about transforming the compass of Scottish aristocratic life. He brought a bunch of Normans with him for starters, such as Robert de Bruce, for example, a nobleman whose family came from Brie in Normandy. There were lots of ordinary working men who also immigrated from England at the same time, drawn by David's new fangled invention, taken from those southern softies, the borough. Abbeys and so on were built in the continental style, and darn me if David didn't even import the English shire. All of this meant that by the 13th century, the Scots had earned their membership card into the human race, as defined by the Anglo-French world. Their noble and royal families intermarried. The Scottish kings and many Scottish nobles gave homage to the English king for extensive lands in England. You'll probably remember that Robert Bruce, for example, fought for King Henry at Lewis. The question of whether or not the Scottish king owed allegiance to the English king was there in the background. Who out there understands the concept of the SEP? This is a Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy idea. SEP stands for someone else's problem. It's a common phenomenon. A problem so hairy, difficult and nasty that you can't actually even see it because your mind blanks it out. The question of supremacy was an SEP. It did wink into existence every so often, and after all, there was a precedent. Remember King Edgar of England being rowed down the River Dee by the kings of various places, including Scotland. Henry II had forced William the Lion, the then King of England, to do him homage, specifically for Scotland. Just to explain that a bit more, the kings of Scotland were well used to bending the knee before the kings of England but only in respect to the lands they held from the King of England that were themselves within England. So, the Kings of Scotland, for example, would do homage for Huntingdon. But in this case, William had supported the rebellion against Henry II in 1173-4, because he claimed that Northumbria and Cumbria belonged to the Scottish crown. He had been well beaten by Henry, and Henry took his revenge by making him do homage for Scotland as well as for his personal lands in England. But then we get to Richard the Lionheart. Now, Richard was more than happy to meet with William and sell those rights right back to him for 10,000 marks, both because he wanted the readies and to make sure Scotland didn't stab him in the back while he was away saving Christendom. After that, the Scots continued to claim Northumbria and Cumbria as part of Scotland, and the English kings reverted to claiming that they were actually kings of Britain as well as kings of England. But basically no one pushed it. There was the odd attempt to raise the question, but English and Scots rubbed along in a pretty friendly, brotherly way. So in what follows, bear all that in mind. Don't think Flower of Scotland or David's soul and the 1995 nation's final. Think peace, love and brotherhood albeit with the potential seeds of a dispute. So, we come to Alexander III. He's a powerful and successful king of Scotland. He expanded the frontiers of his realm, taking the islands on the western seaboard from the Norwegians, for example. 
There's an incident at the marriage of Llewellyn of Wales at the court of Edward that illustrates rather nicely the supremacy question and just suggests that things may be about to change in this happy relationship. Edward I, as we've learnt, was a bit more inclined to push things and is not above the odd bit of trickery here and there. So, he invited King Alexander of Scotland down to the Hooley and arranged for Alexander to perform his homage in respect of his English lands, in front of the assembled masses. This was fine, Alexander did the necessary, and then the Bishop of Norwich, clearly planted by King Edward, stepped forward and asked if Alexander shouldn't be doing homage for Scotland as well. Alexander was, however, well prepared, or at least, if you read the Scottish Chronicles, he was well prepared. And he responded by saying... Nobody but God has the right to homage for my kingdom of Scotland, and I hold it of nobody but God himself. Despite these shenanigans, Alexander was f- despite these shenanigans, Alexander was family. He was married to Edward I's sister Margaret, and relationships between the two royal families were basically very amicable. Alexander had a very comfortable three children, Margaret the eldest, and then two boys, so heir and a spare. Alexander and David. Margaret was married off to Eric of Norway and all was rosy in the kingdom, the dynasty secure. What followed was a run of bad luck on a truly cosmic scale. First of all, Queen Margaret, as in Alexander's wife, died in 1275. Then in 1281, the spare, i.e. younger son David, died aged nine. And then in 1283, Margaret, died giving birth in Norway to a child who turned out also to be a girl, who they could just not resist calling Margaret, just to make the life of poor quadcasters that little bit harder. And then in 1284, the big one. The heir to the throne, Alexander, died as well. But all was not lost. Alexander III was still in his forties, which, as all of us in our forties know, is when men are at their most attractive and vigorous, if sometimes a tiny bit porky. And indeed, though with no reputation of porkiness, Alexander did have a reputation for vigour, as the Lanacost Chronicle relates. He used never to forbear on account of season nor storm, nor for perils of flood or rocky cliffs, but would visit none too creditably nuns or matrons, virgins or widows as the fancy seized him, sometimes in disguise. None too creditably. Is that really how we describe the seizing of the Brides of Christ for a night of passion? Nice to see that understatement was alive and kicking in the 13th century. Anyway, this time Alexander married a 23-year-old Frenchwoman. A couple of months into the marriage, Alexander was at Edinburgh, conducting his official business, while his young French wife waited 23 miles away at Kinghorn on the rocky coast of Fife. It was a stormy night, but full of perfectly creditable passion, Alexander set off, despite being begged to leave it till the morning. The result of his creditable passion was death, disaster, destruction, chaos, and indeed despair. In the night he became separated from his guides, and in the morning his broken body was found at the bottom of a cliff. Not good. But what's this? The Queen, it transpires, is pregnant. Hurrah! Or at least... Hurrah to a degree. So, at best, now, we're looking at just a very long regency. So, at the Scottish Parliament of April 1286 at Schoon, 
the suspicious and fractious nobility of Scotland came together and managed to sink their differences for the greater good. They elected a group of rather heroically named Guardians of the Realm to look after the place. Some of these names, or their families, will come up again and again, so let's go through some of them. First of all, there's Bishop William Fraser of St Andrews. St Andrews was recognised as the leading bishopric of Scotland, so he's the ecclesiastical head of the church in Scotland. Robert Wishart had been the Bishop of Glasgow since 1273. He is a big name in Scottish history, a man who will go to the grave resisting English plans. Earl Alexander Cummin of Buchan and John Cummin of Badenoch. Now, there are some big names in the Scottish nobility and none of them came greater than the Cummins. As you can guess from the fact that 20% of the Guardians, in fact, are from that one family. Buchan is in the north and Badenoch the south. Alexander Cummin will die by 1289. But John Cummin will be a major player for much of the crisis. He's also part of that Scotto-Norman elite and had also fought for Henry III at Lewis. OK, so everyone settled down for a long wait, and probably for the inevitable squabbling to start, but sadly the young Queen miscarried, and everything was thrown into the confusion again. There was one more throw of the dice. You'll remember that Alexander's daughter, Margaret, had married Eric of Norway, and had a daughter, Margaret, before she died. So that Margaret who became known as the Maid of Norway, was now the heir to the Scottish throne. It was the guardians of Scotland themselves who looked for a powerful supporter to help them with what could be a long and difficult regency. And so in 1286, after meeting with Edward in England, it was agreed that the Maid would marry Edward's son, Edward of Carnarvon, when she arrived in Scotland. And for Edward, of course, this was a bit of a triumph. He'd have united all of Britain under one crown when he died, and his son became the King of England. But what he would not have done is have united the kingdoms. The guardians of Scotland were very clear on this point. Before the maid arrived in 1290, Edward had signed a treaty which made it clear that the two kingdoms were separate, even if they just happened to be ruled by the same king. The key phrase was that Scotland should remain, and I quote, free in itself and without subjection from the Kingdom of England. So one of the questions about this whole affair is when did Edward turn from friend of the Scots to ravening, bloodthirsty and domineering conqueror? This treaty seems to suggest that he had no designs at this point, but of course at this stage Edward thought he was going to get his way through his son anyway. And before he finally signed this treaty, he made an awful fuss trying to get control of Scotland's castles, and reserved the right to come back to the lordship question. It's by no means certain that Edward was even at this stage just an honest broker. At this stage, ironically, the Guardians of Scotland were joined by John Warren, the Earl of Surrey. Ironic, given Warren's later role in victory over the Scots at Dunbar. But whatever Edward's motivation, in September 1292, when the little seven-year-old maid ship arrived at the Orkneys, the news quickly spread that she was dead, and all those plans had come to nothing. The following search, then, to find the King of Scotland has become known as the Great Cause. As far as the Scots were concerned, there were basically two claimants. A chap called John Balliol, and one called Robert Bruce. 
I should say something about these two men. So, John Balliol was born in 1249 and to all accounts was an Englishman. His father had held Barnard Castle in Durham, for example, and had been the one to endow Balliol College in Oxford, where, I'm told, they still carry out some kind of low-level educational activity in between visits to the pub and applying to proper universities. Being the youngest brother of four, John was probably heading for the church as a career when his three brothers died. Now, the connection with the Scottish royal family came through his mother's side through the rather magnificently named Dervogila Balliol. Dervogilia lived to be an old lady of 80, so John didn't get to be a major Scottish landowner until 1290. Now, as to which of these had the greater right, well, this brings me to one of the weakest of my many weak points, families and their relationships. The word cousin makes me feel positively faint. So don't think I'm going to try to explain it, except to say that there's basically a genuine conflict between the principle of primogeniture and closeness in bloodline. So they'd had to go back over a hundred years to David I to find the next in line. John Balliol had the best claim in that he was descended via a male line. Robert Bruce had the advantage in that he was descended from an older daughter of David, but of course in the female line. So the Scots were looking for a friend to help them make their decision. And who better to help than Edward, their friend and neighbour, a great man on the stage of the wider Christendom. OK, so they'd had some slightly worrying signs that his intentions might not be entirely honourable. But surely those concerns were only for the most cynical. So in May 1291, by agreement, the Scots headed for the town of Berwick to meet up with Edward and decide who should be king. Berwick at this time being in the southeastern corner of Scotland, rather than where it is now, which is in the northeastern corner of England. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
By this stage, it's pretty clear that Edward had decided to make political capital out of all of this and make a play for establishing English dominance over Scotland. And it wasn't long before the Scots began to realise they were in trouble. Edward had arrived at a castle called Norham, which is on the River Tweed, a few miles upstream from Berwick. But it's in England. So Edward sent a note to the Scottish guardians that they should come and meet him in Norham, not Berwick. This is a bad sign. Meeting on English turf was probably one way of proving supremacy, i.e. who has to come and see whom. When the Scots arrived, grumbling, they were hit with far worse. At the opening speech, they were told that rather than being a simple arbitration between the Scottish nominees, actually Edward was going to throw the search open to anyone who could make a claim and then he'd make a judgment. And he'd be doing this, of course, because he was Scotland's overlord. In the big draughty hall of Norham Castle, all that could be heard initially was the cracking of bone against stone as a series of Scottish jaws hit the floor. It didn't take long for the Scots to find their voice. What? We don't think so, Edward. Who's ever heard of such an outrageous claim? Now, it's pretty clear that the Scots would have heard of this particular outrageous claim many times before, but why not face exaggerated hyperbole with exaggerated hyperbole? Edward, at this point, would, I guess, have had an expression somewhere between the smug smile of a banker collecting his annual bonus and the eager look of a vulture eyeing up a dying man in a desert. Because he then produced a dossier of all the evidence he could find, which, according to him, conclusively proved that the English king historically held supremacy over the Scottish. Now, in terms of sexing up dossiers, Edward could have taught Tony and George a thing or two. The thing even appealed to the legend of King Arthur. But Edward's message was clear. You can agree to this claim, or I can release my weapons of mass destruction and we can settle the matter by force. And just by luck, Edward had made sure that the English fleet was casually hanging around nonchalantly off the coast. And oh, is that another 650 English crossbowmen just arriving in Norham? Then we have a bit of fun. Robert Wishop, Bishop of Glasgow, was man enough to stand up to Edward. Look, Teddy Baby, three things. First of all, the Guardians are only temporary until the next king comes along, and it's only he that could swear homage anyway. Secondly, it's not up to the Scots to say why Edward's dossier was pants. It's up to Edward to prove that he was right. And finally, probably said with just a hint of sarcasm, is threatening war and destruction really what an avowed crusader ought to be threatening other Christians with? At this, it all broke up. Edward yelling that he'd bring crusades to Scotland if that was what the Scots wanted, and if Wishart gave him that look again, he'd meet him outside for a knuckle sandwich. It would be nice to think that the bishop offered to give Edward a Glasgow kiss of peace, but the sources don't record the phrase, stitch that teddy. Having said that, the phrase knuckle sandwich is probably also absent, actually. Interestingly, though, Edward had something of an excuse for his surprise and fury. He'd had a letter from one of the candidates before the meeting, saying that he and his supporters all thought Edward's supremacy was a terribly good idea. That man was Robert Bruce. And this gave Edward a way out of the en passe. 
because now he asked each of the candidates to recognise the supremacy of the English crown before they took their application forward. Bruce almost fell over himself to be the first to make the public submission, with all the dignity of a visitor to the first day of the Harrods post-Christmas sale. Balliol, soon to be seen as a terrible weakling and cat's paw of the English, stuck out for longer, but actually, what could he do? It would be slightly difficult to imagine Edward's purely objective and evidence-based decision coming out for anyone who didn't sign up to this. No, it's pretty clear that Edward's purely objective and evidence-based decision would favour the man who could achieve the lowest grovel. So Balliol gave in, and the horde of other applicants who were now crawling out of the woodwork did the same. John Cummin, one of the guardians, came with Balliol, but the three remaining guardians did no such thing. After days of argument, even the Bishop of Glasgow and the rest of the guardians finally agreed to do homage as well. But... Unlike the candidates, the bishop did so on carefully chosen ground. Firstly, Edward swore to maintain the laws of Scotland. Secondly, the formula was as chief lord and guardian of the kingdom until a king is provided. And finally, Edward was forced to go to the mountain. It was he who had to cross the river so that the guardians could take their fealty on Scottish ground rather than the other way around. But now, finally, the great cause started. Now there were 13 claimants to the throne. Yes, 13, which presumably included people who once thought they might have seen a Scottish oatcake. But everyone knew there were really only two that mattered, Bruce and Balliol. And it's likely that everyone else on the 105-strong tribunal knew it too. But Edward was now rather enjoying the whole thing, touring round Scotland to see the place, taking everyone's fealty as he went. And frankly, the longer it went on, the better as far as he was concerned, because it reinforced the idea of his lordship. And then into town rode a bloke called Floris. Brief digression coming up. Because Floris got mentioned to me by a listener from Netherlands. Matt, I think, if memory serves, and I promised to give the guy a mensch. So Floris's claim was that King David had given up his rights to the Scottish throne and passed them to his sister Ada, who just happened to be Floris's great-great-grandmother. And he had the papers to prove it. Now this sounded like the cock and bull story to end all cock and bull stories, and then oh, surprise, surprise, the paper seems to have gone missing. But then, to everyone's astonishment, Edward gravely nodded and told everyone there would be a ten-month adjournment so that Floris could search his desk to find those pesky papers. You have to think that Edward was simply finding a way anyway to extend his temporary lordship, in the hope that it would make it stick, become part of the furniture, custom and practice. You know the thing. Anyway, having only read about Floris as a bit part in the great cause, it was interesting to hear that in the history of the Netherlands, he's a well-known figure. Floris was the Count of Holland, which I assume we all know is a province of the Netherlands, since I am, irritatingly no doubt, given to calling the whole place Holland. It would be good to know if this bugs the good burghers of Friesland as much as it bugs the Scots when Britain is referred to as England. Answers on a postcard, please, or to the new Facebook group. Anywho, our Floris had a chequered career. His father William had been elected King of the Romans, which, as you probably know, is the anteroom to being Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. But when poor Floris was just two, his father was killed in war by the Frisians, 
and then to cap it all, he had to watch a vicious struggle for the regency. But at the tender age of 12 in 1266, he was acknowledged to be able to rule on his own. I think I've remarked before on how young responsibility came to people in the Middle Ages. I mean, what 12-year-old would you give command of a brown paper bag to, let alone a kingdom? But anyway, there you are. So, why is Floris so famous? Let me give four reasons, one probably a bit trivial. Firstly, he did a fair degree to politically unite the kingdom. It took him a while, but eventually he managed to defeat the pesky Frisians in the north of the Low Countries and bring them into the fold. Number two, possibly slightly trivial as I say, he had an impressive 11 legitimate and 7 illegitimate children. Not quite in Henry I's territory, but not bad. The third reason, though, came about when the peasants joined the townspeople of Utrecht in rebellion. Floris's reaction was to lay down rules about how his officials should treat people and to fight for the cause of the peasants against the power of the nobility. As a result, the nobility sneeringly referred to him as the god of the peasants. History has remembered him in the same light, but just without the sneering. What follows could well show that Edward was not above a bit of political assassination. There is some suggestion that he and his ally Guy of Flanders stirred up Holland's angry nobles and encouraged them to take action against their count. Either way, they duly did this. They laid hands on Floris and imprisoned him, but they'd reckoned without the peasants, who stormed to the castle to defend their protector. The nobles panicked, tied Floris to his horse and made a dash for it. When Floris tried to escape, the conspirators panicked again and killed him by stabbing him over 20 times. So there'll always be this suspicion that Edward was therefore responsible for Floris's death, especially since Floris had recently aligned himself with the King of France. But in 1292, all of this was in the future. During this long adjournment, there was one incident of note that kind of illustrates the difference between Edward and his dad, if any further illustration is necessary. Because in the Welsh marches, the Earls of Gloucester, who as you know are the Declares, and the Earls of Hereford have a serious falling out. It led to raids into each other's lands. The royal justices wandered around giving rulings, which both of them completely ignored. As far as the Earls were concerned, the king's writ didn't run in the marches, so butt out. So how did the king deal with this delicate situation with two of the most powerful men of the realm? Well, he beat them up. He called them together, made them appear before Parliament and sentenced them to imprisonment and the loss of their Welsh estates. Now, within a few days, needless to say, they were back, but in a suitably better behaved form. The king had made his point and how much more effectively than his father would have done. By mid-1292, Edward was getting to the point where he was tired of all the talking and wanted a decision. It was becoming increasingly clear that Balliol was the choice of both Edward and the Scots. In desperation, there's all kinds of horse trading going on. A claimant called John of Hastings said they ought to be splitting the place up between them. Floris and Bruce had a kind of hedging bet where they supported each other's claims and in return whoever won would give the other and in return whoever won would give the other a third of the kingdom. This Bruce, grandfather of the famous one, is a right old player. 
He's 82 now, and right in there trying to stitch up a deal, any deal, to land the big prize. But sure as eggs is eggs, the game was up. Floris and Bruce had lost, and Balliol was the winner. The result of the jury was announced on the 17th of November, and fair dues. Edward ordered Scotland's castles to be handed over to the new king. In the churchyard at Schoon Abbey, Balliol was seated on the sacred stone of Schoon, the stone of destiny, and crowned King of Scots. Edward wasn't there, and had absolutely naff all interest in any of that Scottish mumbo-jumbo. As far as he was concerned, he just had a couple more things to seal his project of making Scotland part of his empire. First of all, on the 26th of December, Balliol had to come to Newcastle, and he had to kneel before Edward and swear homage, unambiguously for Scotland. No arguments, no wriggle room. Well, that was a disappointment for the Scots, but they can't have been surprised. After all, the claimants had to a man said this is what they'd do. But no worries. After all, Edward had promised faithfully that Scotland would remain, as we said before, and I quote again, free in itself, without subjection from the Kingdom of England. Well, if they took comfort in that, they didn't know their leopard. Because the kicker came on the 30th of December, 1292. The Scottish town of Berwick appealed over the heads of the Scottish king to Edward against a legal ruling. And Edward duly overturned the original verdict to make it in their favour. This was anathema. Edward was farting in the general direction of Scottish customs and telling them that it was just his rules that were the ones that applied now as feudal overlord. Just to make sure it was all clear, and I do love this one, the Scots were informed that any promises made by Edward were, quote, for the time being only, and no longer applicable. That's great, isn't it? I mean, how sneaky and unreliable can you get? But as far as Edward was concerned, that was it. At the end of 1292, everything was pretty much set. He was in his early 50s, a major figure on the European scene. Christendom's senior citizen. And he'd united the kingdom of the British Isles under his lordship. He could kick back and bask in the glory. But sadly, of course, that's not the way it goes for Edward. Nothing comes that easy. And really, he was in fact on the brink of a load of hard work and stress as the whole edifice creaked and groaned and wobbled. But that, gentle listeners, is a story for another year because I don't think there'll be another History of England podcast this year, which brings me to the end of my second year. We ended 2011 with episode 45, so it has to be said that the pace has slowed just a little bit with 36 this year. And indeed, I have to admit, I've got slightly lazier in terms of output. For those of you interested in stats, I have now spoken 392,000 words. And if you've made it this far, you've listened to about 40 hours of my voice, you lucky things. Anyway, since I'm now descending into mindless drivel and sentiment, I'll go. So my grateful thanks to everyone who has commented on iTunes or by email or on the website or Facebook. If you're looking to give me a Christmas present and are not in a donating mood, hop along to iTunes and give me a rave review. That always brightens up my week. And all of you have a fabulous Christmas and I'll see you in two thousand.